Welcome to Dragon Talk. Yay! Very excited for all of you to be here for this, the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. I am Greg Tito, and I am joined by none other than Shelly Mazanobo. Hi, Greg. How is it going? Really good. Beautiful sunny day today. I know. We finally burned through all of the fog. Yeah. It has been like the mists here the in mi- It's Seattle. like Ravenloft. It's like, like Ravenloft. I leave my house and I don't know where I'm going to go, where I'm going to end up. Right? The trees disappear into nothingness. All of the new, you know, apartment buildings, they disappear into nothingness. I don't know if anybody even lives in those anymore. They're just know. wraiths and ghosts that live there. I ran into Strahd at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Was he holding he's wine uh, and sitting yes. in a chair? I said, hello. <laughs> Have you it's tried this like red blend? I said, no, <laughs> I, like I haven't. You drink your red blend. And I said, cool. When would you like to have me over? Super hot. Make sure you're wearing a mask. <laughs> <laughs> Six feet if we can as well. Yes, we'll have social, social distanced red wine blend. <laughs> Sounds amazing. It is, uh, and we have an amazing show for you today. We've got Brennan Lee Mulligan in the yes, house. Yes, we do. He's so funny. He is the Dungeon Master you may have seen on Dimension 20, uh, on College Humor. He is uh, a wonderfully funny but also very poignant Dungeon Master, uh, as well as him being a player on tons of fun stuff. We'll cover a lot of ground in our interview when we talk to him. We had have a delightful conversation. That's um, true. And he's going to have to come back because I'd like to talk even more about his really cool mom. I know, right? We yeah. only got to scratch the surface a bit there right. uh, near the end of the interview about uh, the sci-fi story that is being woven there at Dimension 20. So cool. So cool. So check out that. Uh, then we also, uh, I'm, we might as well just throw it right to it. We got lore you should know. Hey. With Amanda Hamon on some Strixhaven stuff. Let's get a little listen on that. Welcome to another segment of Lore You Should Know. I am here with Amanda Hamon. Hello, Amanda. How are you? Hello. I'm great. Kermit Flail. Ah! <laughs> Very excited to get into some lore on this segment where we talk about some of the fun things around storytelling and world building in Dungeons and Dragons that you can use in your game uh, or just because it's really fun to know uh, some of this fun stuff. And because you were one of the co-leads on Strixhaven, a curriculum of chaos, which is still out there and I've seen tons of people playing it all over. I wanted to focus on one really fun part of that book called The Masquerade. Yeah, yeah. So the Magister's Masquerade is mm. an event that an event in lore that um, was actually created specifically for the Strixhaven Curriculum of Chaos hardcover. Um, there, you know, lots of stuff that you'll recognize if you're a magic player from uh, the setting are it's pulled into this event. Um, it's on Lorehold's campus. Uh, Master Coloma, the big statue in Coloma Hall, is very important um, in it, as well as that person in the history of the university. All of those things are tied into it, but this is a brand new event that you can learn all about only from the D&D book, which is very exciting. 
That's, I love shared world building like that, right? Where you know the Magic the Gathering team created this entire thing. You pulled a lot of things from it um, <laughs> for this book, but then you're also like, well, we need some some more D and D centric, you know, relationship type of events. Yep, that's and exactly we what we were thinking. <laughs> and what's awesome. more fun than going to a very fancy masquerade ball in which you can't necessarily recognize your peers um, because of their magical costumes uh, that has history going back more than 600 years on the campus? Uh, that that to me was very fascinating and fun to create. I love that because it also seems similar to other, you know, like a toga party in animal in an animal house or some other things yeah. like having those kind of heightened things that you wouldn't necessarily have in other places of the world except yep. on a college campus. Yeah, it's a very recognizable type of trope, right? There's lots of fiction out there that revolves around a big dance. Um, you know, prom is, is a thing that comes to mind, right, for American high schoolers. But, you know, it's more than just that. It's also like a big formal ball. Um, if you're into Greek life on, uh, you know, uh, university settings, uh, there's, there's a long history of, you know, like formal events that are very pivotal in a young person's life um, that, you know, they work toward. And in this case, this is the third year event, um, Asterix Haven for third year students, and they do spend the entire uh, school year doing various things leading up to this event, preparing, preparing Cola Mahal, um, uh, creating their outfits, uh, you know, uh, gathering supplies that are going to be needed for the event, that sort of thing. That's all represented within the adventure. That's Awesome. You mentioned this masquerade had started 600 years ago? Yeah, um, a little bit more than that. So Strixhaven itself was founded 700 years ago by the Founder Dragons, correct? Mm -hmm. Um, And then they uh, established the university and they brought in the first masters, who were the first teachers um, of the university for various subjects in the the different, uh, on the different campuses. Um, One of them was a monk, uh, a a very well-known, very well-traveled urbane monk named Master Coloma. And Master Coloma was a uh, he was an instructor and a professor in the College of Lorholt, which has to do with history and archaeomancy and archaeology, and is all about um, pulling magic uh, that is rooted in the past into into the future and learning learning from the past and channeling that into uh, you know the magic that that shapes that campus. And so, Master Coloma actually created. Uh, an event uh, called the Magister's Masquerade as just a, a one-time event because he was noticing that throughout the disparate uh, five campuses, students were not really coming together. They were uh, too, they were identifying too much with their home campus. Uh, they were not really a cohesive university student body. And so to address that concern, um, because he wanted all of the students to become mages who had a camaraderie that would last beyond the graduation, um, Asterix Haven, he created the Magister's Masquerade, which was um, specifically was specifically meant to uh, obscure the uh, physical features of each student. Uh, all third-year students were invited. They had to, uh, they have to come up with, uh, you know, like a mask. Uh, outfit that involves magic and it was all about them mingling and working together to create this event regardless of what campus they are part of regardless of what their course of study is they're expected to put this event together as third years and come together and bond and learn about each other and you know have their their different their differences strengthen themselves as people moving forward and that was so successful but that was then a yearly event for third years uh, for the rest of Strixhaven's existence, so over 600 years. Wow. So that means there's been more than 600 of these over the yeah. course of all of that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Why was it important for uh, Columna to obscure 
the identities of the students? I think it's because he wanted to he wanted to keep factions from forming. I think in the way that oh. cliques happen, right, um, on university campuses and at high schools, he wanted to avoid the students just sort of nominally working with each other, but staying within their own groups. He wanted to make sure that you know after they were uh, assigned you know the different tasks to put the uh, event on, that when they attended the events um, that they, you know, wouldn't be able to necessarily recognize who their, their friends were and that they, you know, would need to be to need to be dancing with and needing, needing to be interacting with um, other, uh, other classmates. That is not what I expected. I thought it was going to be more about like they're, you know, showing their magical prowess and, and a little bit know. of that as well. Yeah. But there's not, there's not a lot of, there's a lot of magic involved in the creation of the hall itself for that night. Um, each, uh, each ball, each masquerade actually has a theme, right? Um, and so the decorations and the the magical effects and the the food and the costumes all are along a certain theme. And the theme in the Strixhaven book for the third year adventure is uh, a starlit evening. And so it's all about sort of the the magic of the heavens and all about uh, uh, like astronomy and astrology a little bit, kind of pulling those themes into the way the hall looks, what the costuming uh, looks like. There's an added little bit to the costuming that Lorehold uh, Dean Tullis asks the the students to incorporate um, involving history, but it's all along the same theme. Um, and so that's all, that's all part of bringing students together and, um, you know, like de-emphasizing the specific magic that they do and getting them to, to think a little bit outside what they're used to. Was the location of it being on lower hold, was that just because that's where the first one was and it just tradition continued or is there added significance um, from the lower hold uh, campus? Yeah, so th- that is true actually for both reasons. So the first one was on Lorehold's campus, but it was on a building that it was in a building that no longer exists. And after Master Kualama uh, retired, he left a grand sum of money to the university that they then used to build Kualama Hall, which is a uh, it, there's a magic card of it. There's a bunch of beautiful art of it. It's a, a many storied lecture hall um, that uh, we actually map out um, to only two levels of it because we can't map out like 20 levels. <laughs> But the two levels that are um, pertinent to the adventure that you are exploring and decorating and working, you know, with other students to accomplish these tasks, you get to explore those areas of the map through the adventure. And so, uh, so yes, to answer your question, the masquerade was originally on a building that no longer existed. Then when Colima Hall was built um, and established after Master Coloma retired, there was this giant statue of the monk that is actually in the middle of Coloma Hall. That's a really cool part of the uh, of the map of the adventure that goes all the way to the very top. Um, and uh, decorating that is part of, of everything. Um, another really cool fact about it being in Coloma Hall, uh, which of course, you know, it's neat that the Master Coloma himself founded this and it's in the hall named after him, but also this statue. Uh, the statue, once every year during the Magister's Masquerade, there is a ritual that's performed by the current one of the current deans of Lorehold College, and it very briefly channels Master Coloma's spirit into the statue to give a, a brief sort of address to all of the third years that have gathered there to talk a little bit about what they have, what they've accomplished, um, you know, to, to give a little bit of a, of an apocryphal type of um, prediction in some cases. In this particular case, there's a very nasty ongoing plot behind the scenes and strange things that have been happening throughout this adventure um, and very, a very sinister undertone mm. to what Master Coloma says 
Um, but again, it, it's like an augury. It's not exactly going to tell you, he doesn't tell you what's going to happen, um, probably because the spirit himself doesn't necessarily know, but he's able to warn the characters and all of the attendees at this masquerade that uh, there's something lurking out there. There's there's sins of the past that are about to uh, to come to call and, and you need to be wary of this. And then that happens. You can hear a pin drop after everyone's like, what's he talking about? And then something from the plot happens immediately and you start to figure out what's going on. Wow. All right. So I love, you know, in, in, in skimming through this chapter, uh, you know, when I uh, received the book, I was, I was uh, excited to see all the dramatic possibilities that could occur uh, at, at an event like this, right? Because, you know, we've, as you were mentioning earlier, there's so many tropes around, you know, proms and dances and formal uh, events uh, in a fantasy bent as well as, you know, in our, in our lives. Mm-hmm. Some of the most important things growing up in adolescent years happens at these events. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so I love that it's the mix of very personal, right? You might have your first kiss, your first dance, your, you know, your, uh, uh, you know, uh, being even rejected for the first time is something that's really important for that time. But then you also have these momentous events going on uh, potentially with this augury happening from the the spirit. And I just think that's such a great contrast of, you know personal role-playing moments with bigger plot happening. Yeah, yeah. The masquerade um, event in the book actually takes place in parts specifically for that reason. So there's kind of like the opening part that's, uh, you know, the players uh, figuring out and like just getting the lay of the land while the different magical effects are and all the cool stuff that they can do with the masquerade. And then there's sort of the, uh, a very brief address by the um, Dean Tullis, the dean, of, one of the deans of Lorehold College um, about the event itself. And then there's sort of a relationships kind of interaction that can happen if that's something that's happening in your game. And then there's the ceremony that happens. Master Coloma gives his speech and then there's uh, the sort of ending bits um, in there. So it, it is segmented out in a way that we hope is very, uh, very intuitive and very, and very helpful for DMs because there's, like you said, so many things going on at this one big event. We want to make sure to give special due um, and call out the specific individual things and allow space for all of that to happen. That is extremely useful, obviously, if people are running the adventures whole cloth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd love, to, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit on how uh, dungeon masters can use, you know, we've talked a lot about how strict saving can be used in a homebrew setting and, and, you know, use some of the bits and pieces and mechanical systems, uh, to, to improve your game. If you're doing an adolescent, uh, slash, uh, young adult, um, uh, type of adventure. Uh, so how can people use some of the parts of this dramaticness that, you know, obviously it's more scripted out in the adventure, but how can they use these parts, uh, as, as a dungeon master to kind of have an event like this in their ongoing story? Oh, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So, uh, so Strixhaven, the the third year adventure is, uh, like I mentioned, it does revolve around all uh, of the masquerade events and leading everything leading up to the masquerade. There's not only preparing the hall, but there are, you know, there are dance lessons that you can attend. Um, oh. You know, there's picking out your outfit. There's going shopping. There's like a fashion element if you want to do that. That's, That's pretty like fun. Five sessions right there. Yeah, you can spend <laughs> lots of time doing that. But you know, the event itself, uh, you know, if you are using the the camp campaign setting of Strixhaven if you're using the campus and sort of the the happenings of campus as a scaffold for a larger campaign, you can totally just ignore all of that run up to the masquerade and you can just have players attend the ball. Um, The adventure uh, assumes and instructs DMs to say like, oh, the characters are 
very involved in, in planning this and here are the committees that they can join if they want to. But if you, you know, have another plot going on, if you've got uh, a more combat focused uh, game going on and, and say, you know, you, you want to run uh, that type of um, situation, then you can totally just skip all of the preparations and just say, okay, well now it's time to attend the ball and have sort of a very short, uh, almost like a session zero, maybe of, you know, tell me what your outfits are like, tell me where you got them, tell me who it is you, you're going to take if you're taking anybody and tell me your plans for it, give kind of the download of what the event is and then just have them go. And then that can actually, you could do that and not even necessarily do anything else and just play the rest of the adventure because of the way that, uh, you know, the main villain um, interacts uh, with the individuals at the party. And uh, what ends up happening is that it's obvious that there's something going on and it does seem like the Dean is involved. Mm -hmm. So the characters are prompted to follow her and see if she is up to something no good. And then that kicks into uh, the actual villain and the plot that's going on. So you could you could do that as a game master and do anything you want in the lead up in the school year to the masquerade, which happens toward the end of the year. And then you could play that sort of ending arc as its own little module if you wanted to. Yeah. And then have the augury of the statue could be anything. Yeah. Any plot. Oh, yeah. You could change, you could change his speech. Yeah. You could have his speech be just like. Oh, you know, you can have him address the things that have happened in your campaign and then say, now there's some even worse villain who's threatening, um, you know, your events or your your classmates or, you know, your professors and and give the PCs that sort of uh, seed to go off on and then yeah. have the rest of the adventure play out the way it does in the book. It's like having a dream, you know, being, a, mm -hmm. you can use dreams however you want as a game master mm -hmm. to, to uh, move your plot along. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so how does this event like this um interact with how your player characters are going to interact with the NPCs, like the other, you know, their, their potential rivals, their friends. How does that, how, you know, how, how does a temple event like this, like the masquerade, uh, mm -hmm. affect all of those, those relationships in that system? Well, throughout the year, um, just like with the other events that are pivotal throughout the, the adventures in the other years, there are specific opportunities to interact with NPCs that you have built up uh, either a friendship with or a rivalry with, or if you have a beloved um, aspect of your relationship with that NPC, there are specific spots in the adventure, um, specifically the lead up to the masquerade, the preparations for the masquerade that you can then interact with those um, uh, individuals. So for example, there's the dance lessons that I mentioned before where the, the university, um, the masquerade committee has hired a professional dancer um, who's in a free, I believe, to come in and like help the help you learn some cool moves, right? So, to show off on the dance floor. And it's a totally optional <laughs> encounter, um, right? But during those dance lessons, uh, your it's a relationship encounter and the DM is instructed that if any um, PC has got a friend or a rival or a beloved that they are also taking the dance lessons and you have an opportunity to interact with them to gain a relationship points or to lose a relationship points sort of as you and the DM see fit. Um, and then those types of opportunities lead into the final masquerade, which is, you know, the, the sort of big climax event of the whole year. And there's an opportunity there as well to specifically interact with the person that you've come with. The adventure talks about, you know, what kind of interactions might happen when you ask somebody to come with you or if an NPC is going to ask you how that all works. Um, and then you can interact and have a special little scene with your your frenemy, your best friend, your your partner, you know, if you're in a polycule, you know, your multiple beloveds, that sort of thing. Um, and it's a very unique and sort of specialized 
type of encounter um, that we hope is is very special. Um, that does simulate that like memory yeah. that you would make with somebody yeah. at a, so, at a so dance. So along those lines, the way the relationship points work, mm-hmm. um, would a, a, a would a dungeon master make sense to uh, basically? add to those points like an order of magnitude so like you know the 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 leading up to it like the dance lessons might be you know plus one or two on Mm -hmm. relationship points but if something happens in front of the school where everyone's watching are those relationship points possibly bigger swings because it's you know potentially a larger uh, uh you know moment in this relationship's Oh yeah, absolutely. Like we we definitely recommend being very careful with when you're awarding relationship points or when you're um you're giving negative relationship points if that's if that's the case if somebody's really rivalrous with another NPC. And the reason that we caution that is because the threshold is very low for when uh an NPC becomes your friend versus uh when they become your rival. Um basically you have to have a couple of relationship points. It's only a couple to uh positive relationship points and then that person becomes your friend. And the benefit of them becoming your friend kicks in. And each NPC um, has got a uh, a boon bane uh, and um, a uh, or a friendship boon and a friendship bane. So good things or bad things that happen depending on whether you are their friend or their rival. Um, so the boon is is very similar to uh, you know what a background effect would give you. It's a story based thing that the character does or the character uh, you know provides you influence to be able to do because you are their friend. Same thing with a bane. Um, there's you know bad stuff. You know the character kind of pokes you in the eye constantly metaphorically speaking because they're annoyed with you they're your rival that sort of thing um like we've got one character who is uh greta goran she's a dwarf um who is a fan uh, a favorite of a lot of people who've played the game from what i've heard (laughs) her uh boon is that uh you know she uh helps you um like you know move heavy stuff and she can uh, give you bonuses to to strength based things that you're doing her bane if you annoy her because she's the leader of the Iron Lifter Society, is whenever you are in a hurry and you're trying to accomplish something, uh, there's just like something in your way. You might show back up to your dorm room and there's a desk that's been pushed against your door that you've got to move before you can get back in there. Um, you might find yourself, you know, having uh, having trouble getting out of a, a room where the door is closed because something is up against it. Um, there's little things like that. And so you do have to be careful when you're awarding lots of positive or negative points because uh you know the the swing of those uh, little benefits can be um pretty pretty tight um so we do recommend that you pretty much stick to the the adventure um relationship encounters but that's not to say that there isn't room for something really cool happens somebody has a really cool idea there's a role-playing you know encounter or scene that happens that's not scripted in the book like you can absolutely do that yeah i'm thinking of uh, modeling the type of relationship where you may have uh, a friend or even a best friend, and then they start dating, you know, yeah. your beloved, right? Yeah. And then that all of a sudden, friend, oh, you know, totally, that goes, you know, negative three points yeah. and becomes your rival. And I, oh, yeah. I, and that type of swinginess might occur more at a at a masquerade than it might just in, you know in in, in because of the dramaticness of that, right? And I so, foresee a lot of that type of thing happening uh, as players in the same party are uh, vying ooh, for the yeah. attentions of the same NBCs. I've I've heard a lot of that anecdotally, where everybody 
is really into trying to get the favor of Allura, uh, Aurora Luna Winterstar, who's our Dampier sort of goth girl artist, um, or Greta, you know, our our dwarf, um, or Javanesh, our, our scruffy Owlin with a heart of gold. There's a lot of people who like, they really latch onto the same NPC and then they're kind of competing a little bit. So I would definitely recommend to DMs. <laughs> Yeah. That if that is the case, like you, you should absolutely feel empowered to just be like, oh, they got very offended by this thing that happened because, you know, <laughs> you guys are both <laughs> right, trying right. to compete for them. <laughs> but it is good to know to be careful of the swinginess there, right? Yeah. And make sure it's reserved for, you know, important, yes. dramatic and yeah. role playing moments and not just willy nilly. Yeah, in the deepening of relationships, so having the beloved is out. It's not completely outside of because you have to be a friend with an NPC before you can become their beloved. But it's not a points-based thing. It's more of a role-playing based thing. And the player essentially needs to decide uh, of this NPC who is now my friend, do I want them to become my beloved? And how do I want that relationship to look like? And there's a lot, the book goes into depth about working with your DM, about making sure everybody is on the same page and comfortable with the direction that that role-playing is going. Mm -hmm. Um, But having beloveds will uh, essentially give you a special kind of inspiration um, for, you know, when you are doing skill checks. So where a a scuffle breaks out or something like that, and like you are bolstered by, you know, having somebody that, you know, cares about you deeply. Um, so, so the beloved stuff is much more um, subjective, uh, right? So that would be definitely a place for <laughs> some of those decisions, like, oh, no, someone's offended with you and breaking up with you or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love how w- whenever we talk about this, I always think of, of 80s movies. I've got like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know better There's off a lot of John Hughes stuff. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's such, such, you know, tropes from our youth. And I guess, you know, uh, for, for kids nowadays too, they have similar touchstones. But for me, it's, it's those, those teen movies I loved when I was a kid. And, and uh, yeah. now, now I love that there's a, a, a D&D model system for, for uh, you know, just giving benefits and 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 yeah, uh, yeah. what you're saying here you know we wanted to lean into that kind of flavor you know I, i've talked to, at length in various interviews about how different 90s rom-coms are, were very much inspirational to the the content of the adventure in this book um yeah. and you know we felt like why you know why not just completely uh lean into that angle and provide mechanics uh for these things that we're you know saying will enhance the the way of playing this game and the masquerades is a perfect event that encapsulates all this uh yeah well. for sure I, I love the piece of art of the yeah uh, the dancing the dancing <laughs> together with the starry uh ceiling all in there it mm-hmm. really cemented my you know visual mental image of what this uh this event is yeah yeah really fun Great. Well, thanks, Amanda, uh, for talking us through how Dungeon Masters could use the Masquerade as written or, or uh, in, improvised in their homebrew. Um, if people wanted to uh, get in touch with you, how can they find you on the webs? I am on the Twitters at Amanda Hammond, H-A-M-O-N. Um, however, I just kind of tweet about a bunch of nonsense. So, so you can, if you like random nerd stuff, that's where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true for all of us in the D&D team for, to, yep. to a certain extent, but uh, yep. that's awesome. Get some fun stuff going on there, and thanks again for joining. We'll be uh, seeing you again soon, hopefully. Yeah, sounds good. Yay. I am thoroughly enjoying all of the ways in which we can use 80s movies, tropes, 
in our Dungeons and Dragons games uh, that Amanda has been bringing to life here in Strixhaven. It's great stuff. Now that is some lore that I actually really should know because that is right up my alley. You know how to create friends and rivals in your real life <laughs> because you're a real housewife of Seattle. That's right. I am. Or Thanks of her. the mists, depending on. Real what. housewives of the mists. I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. They're all hags. Yeah. <laughs> One man's opinion. <laughs> they're not, they're not the, the, the mystical monster hags. hags. They're just harpies, <laughs> sirens. Could be. Yeah. 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 That's true. Five alarm, fire on that one. Totally. Speaking of five alarms, we're going to ring all the bells when we talk to Brendan Lee Mulligan right about now. Let's welcome Brendan Lee Mulligan to Dragon Talk. Yes! 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 Dragon Talk! Dragon! Dragon! Oh, I love Brennan. Oh my gosh, we have to get this guy out of the studio audience. He's freaking out. He's, freaking <laughs> He's yelling out. like crazy. Brennan! <laughs> I'm so happy to be back. It's great. Shelly, great. I had I such know. a ball last time we were on prior to uh, a lot going uh, on. But it's wonderful, wonderful to be back. It's so great to be. I was just looking up January 2020, right before <gasps> the, the, oh, the world. Oh, seriously? Fell apart. We had no idea. We had, were we so were babies. Naive. We were babies. Sweet winter children? Yes. <laughs> winter children, exactly. Just with the promise of spring before us. All oh. spring, all was bright. In the all world. of the things that we looked forward to. I actually saw something very funny, uh, well, uh, speaking of that time, of like, I, I, I'm not going to phrase it correctly, but it was like, so basically nobody got the the answer right to the where do you see yourself in five years question, like, like five <laughs> years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, nope. Didn't see myself here in my nope. house for two weeks. Going on two years now. No. There is a weird feeling I have all the time. It's, it is it is a real, like, conceitedness that I think exists in this era that we, you know, we call, like, the modern or postmodern or whatever. But, like, when history happens, I feel scandalized. Yeah. Like, <laughs> a pandemic happens and I'm like... No, <laughs> stuff stopped happening in the 20th century. Now we're in the normal future. Right. And it's like, why would, why would that be? That's the, that's the wild. But I do some very conceited and also just like wrongheaded part of my emotional consciousness is always like world events, you know, like uh, unbelieving. How dare I... you do this in front of me? I agree yeah. though. It's, it, it's still to me, even though nearly two years, I'm like, I still, I, can you believe this is happening? Can yeah. you believe this has happened? Get ready when we are all deep in old age, <laughs> like grandchildren's friends come and like, I have to do a book, a school's oh. report about COVID. What, what, what was the, did you, what? <laughs> so it was outside and you couldn't go outside. What was that like? We'll yeah. Have to explain. You got to, my assignment is I have to go find someone who lived through the pandemic of 2020. Okay, sure. My daughter does that now, except it's very different. It's, uh, Dad, did you watch Full House when you were a kid? Like, <laughs> did you? Oh, well, at yes, least your kids that. assume that you had electricity. Because Quinn will ask me questions like, were things in color when you were a kid? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and he's not even Brutal. trying to be funny. Like, I have been going back asshole. to, I've been watching uh, Star Trek <laughs> The Next Generation uh, in order uh, from the beginning. And part of that is going back and like seeing what the current events were when those episodes were, were airing. And man, 1989, there was a lot of shit that went down. There was like the Berlin Wall, all of these revolutions, the end of, you know, the beginning of the end of apartheid in South Africa and flag burning here. Was it one I just recently did here in the United My States? Perm. was a big issue. I had Your a perm, perm happened in, in 1989. In 1989. Huge <laughs> perm. <laughs> There's a really, it's, yeah, it is a wild thing because you want to be like, yeah, like, come on, I had things in color, give me a break. And then you'll say something real like, well, I had to get off the internet because my mom needed to use the phone. Yeah. And you'll be oh. like, boo, that is, no. that's pretty old timey. That feels, that feels well, pretty I, you know, I didn't have the internet when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I, had to, I had to get off the phone because we didn't have call waiting. And- <laughs> My mom was like expecting someone to call and what do you do? There's yeah. Well, that's the weirder <laughs> technological thing too is as you go into like the later half of the 20th century, the radical differences in technologies between like decades and even years yeah. is like I thought iPods were going to be a thing forever. Like it was oh, like yeah. iPods. This is like the new thing. And it's like nope, that is a weird cultural artifact. That will be something that, like, in a period piece a hundred years from now, it'll be like, wow, they had the iPods instead of iPhones. Nice touch for the 2004 period piece or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, it's like, oh, that only existed for this little window of time. And even here in the D&D community, <laughs> right, we're in 2022 right now, five years ago was a very different time than it is now, right? Like, I mean, we're getting to the point where me saying five years is actually getting a little bit, but 2017 was before D&D really, really exploded. I mean, people were were into it. They were, it was, you know, and, and the fifth edition was really yep. kind of gaining momentum and Twitch and streaming. A lot of the stuff that you guys have been doing hadn't even started yet, right? Yep. And so Critical Role was out there and, you know, a, cute, a few other uh, uh, shows here and there but the massive boom hadn't even hardened. And that's like five years ago, right? Like, that's not that long it's ago. It's not that long. All yeah. of 2017, that's when I pitched Dimension 20. Really? That's when I pitched Dimension 20 to College Humor, and that's when it started. So, like, that's a funny thing to bring up, but, like, literally what you're talking about is, like, oh, my God, lots happened in five years. You know, well, yeah. like, it's For wild. you guys. So what was that? What was your pitch to, to College Humor five years ago about this? It, the funniest thing in the world, like I, I applied to college humor and didn't get the job. I applied as a cast member. I also had been, I've been playing D and D since I was 10 years old, but like, you know, at a certain point I was there, there was no world in my mind where I was like, you know, D and D could become my job. It was like, (laughs) I was like, no, that's lunacy. Um, Do something way more stable. Like, improv comedy so right I so i like it's been around all, forever yeah exactly i put all my chips on improv comedy applied to uh but it was like always playing D multiple times a month or a week and you know like personally as a hobby and then what ended up happening was we jumped into um so i, well, I moved to la apply for a job at college humor through a ucb connection actually grant o'brien i think recommended me for the job mm. applied didn't get it. And I went, that's sad. And then two months later, um, Mike Trapp was starting up on actually, because in the background, College Human was getting ready to launch Dropout, right? Yeah. Getting ready to launch its streaming platform. Um, 
in that world, uh, you know, so like two months after I don't get hired and I'm doing my little Charlie Brown sad music walk around Los Angeles, hmm. I get a call being like, hey, man, uh, we would love to hire you to come and work in part time, like one week a month as a question writer for um, actually you're a big old dork. And we need to make a lot of I'm actually questions. And I went, oh, I'm, I'm your man. And I jumped in, <laughs> started writing those. And then around a couple months after that, they said, hey, we're writing a spoof or, or like, a, you know, a big um, kind of like reboot, full length reboot of our Troopers web series or kind of like Star Wars parody. As we've discovered, you're a big dork. Will you come in and write this? And I said, count me in. So I started coming in really more, uh, you know, like two, two weeks, two or three weeks a month. And, um, and then a month after that, Zach Oyama um, uh, stepped down and, uh, and they were like, we need a new cast member. And I'm over there, you know, writing like crazy. And they said, Brennan, you're up. Um, and I got called to the big leagues and literally with dimension 20, I was sitting at my desk writing a pitch for an actual play show. Cause they had basically said like, hey, Dropout needs long form content. We need lots of content and we need it to hopefully have a great kind of like, you know, frankly like cost per minute. We need, we want stuff that's gonna be like easier to produce. And I was like, hey, we have lots of talented comedians and performers and for actual play, obviously you there's a lot of production value you can put into it but the spine of the thing is comedians at a table playing D, &D right? right um as long as you got microphones and lights you're good to go yeah exactly right you know you can, and then and then it's the, it's it's all the amazing like okay bring in rick perry to do amazing minis and bring in our awesome post department and editors to add these cool graphics and all this amazing stuff awesome illustrators to bring art but like you're saying all of that is an incredible is an incredible production value to bring onto something that at its root is like great comedians at a table doing a performance. Right. Yeah. And, um, at truly, as I was writing that and I had this whole little market research document I was making, I say market research document, like I'm a business major. I fully was <laughs> you like, pull it out of your briefcase. Yeah. I was like, business, business boy <laughs> here with my market uh -huh. research document. And it's like an MS paint going, Critical Role and the Adventure Zone are good. Stonks we, go up. Yes. Stonks go up. Viewers <laughs> like Dungeons and Dragons game. Like that was my whole pitch. And um, in doing so, but like halfway through writing that pitch, I got called into the head of development's office, this guy, Adam Frucci, who's like, hey, whatever you're doing, stop it for a second. How do you feel about doing an actual play show? And I went, okay. What? turned my laptop around and was like, this is what I'm doing. Um, That's amazing. Uh, it was just very much in the zeitgeist at that time. And, um, you know, like it's obviously the, the years have been even more explosive since then, but the game's popularity growing and growing. Um, That's great. What I love about that story is that you took the thing that you were like, well, there's no future in, you know, being a dork. And that's something that I heard my entire life, you know, from when I was a kid reading fantasy novels. They're like, well, maybe you should have some real novels, too. And I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Blah, blah. <laughs> and they're like, always pigeonholed when uh, we were younger. And those are the things that lead to success, right? Like, those are, those are the secret things. Like, people's passions actually fuel their real work and their real careers in ways that I don't think our parents really realized. It's so wild to look at the 
the the pervasiveness of this kind of meme that like genre fiction be it fantasy or sci-fi yeah. is this like side eddy and that it's like you know serious fiction mm-hmm. like call me when there's like i don't know the f- like uh the checkoff cinematic universe you know what i mean <laughs> call me when there's f- <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Like, nerds won. Like, like, popular media is genre fiction. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, just in terms of eyeballs and dollar amounts and fan engagement, like stories about magic and super science are what people love. It's so you know, it's like it's a weird thing. But I mean, like, it's it's kind of this weird thing of like popular art versus high art. Yeah, and you're like. Popular art is what the vast majority of people love and it's got wizards and lasers in it and people love it. And it's, it's 80% of what people love. It's 80% of what people buy. It's 80% of what people talk about, but we just see people being like, I've written a novel about an English professor who's sad. And everyone's like high art. Right. It's literary, literary fiction versus commercial fiction. That is so insulting to me. Like it is. What the what the oh, hell this is, is literary? Yeah, what is prestige other than a emperor's new? Oh, I'm sorry to curse, but what is what <laughs> is prestige other than a true emperor's new clothes? Of like, we say that it's here, so it's here. Like, yeah, maybe it's not. That's what yeah. the Academy Awards need to kind of catch up with. I mean, the <laughs> amount of stuff that gets honored for being the sad English professor yes. versus what people are actually going to watch and see and, you know, have moving experiences. I don't know. I mean, I'm watching the Marvel movies. I'll cry just as much as I will watching Jane Eyre, you know, like uh, sometimes more because it is more meaningful to me. Well, yeah. And you're more invested in those yeah. characters probably yeah. than and, Jane Eyre. <laughs> and like, listen, I'll, I'll listen to criticisms of these franchises all the time. I'll listen to criticisms of them as like business and ownership structures or of the like actual criticisms of the narrative. That's totally fine. Lord of the Rings is baked into my DNA and I'll make fun of that world building all day, every day. And I'll still cry anytime Theoden, you know, rides uh, for ruin in the world's ending. But it's, you know, it's one of those, those interesting, I think that what's interesting is sometimes people criticize those properties and can have lots of very valid criticisms, but then also missed there. I was just talking the other day about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and I was like, take away any of the stuff within the narrative that you want to criticize. Oh, it's super, it's like pro in military industrial, yada, yada. The idea of having a series of movies that reward you for having seen other movies of that world so that when you go to see them, you go like, oh, like I'm going to have a connection to something already here. This is not a shot in the dark. Like, Mm -hmm. I remember being in my early 20s and going to see a movie and sometimes being like, this is a $20 gamble and $20 is meaningful to go see a movie in New York. Like, it would be great if I had some assurance that I will at least connect to some part of this. Um, And I feel like even if you get rid of all of the stuff about the MCU or get rid of all of this about these big fantasy properties, there is something people should focus on and say, hey, people really like having some assurance that there is less risk in terms of their emotional investment in what this property is going to be. Well, and that's where genre uh, is is good because that's where it all came from was through those pulp uh, 
magazine and, and cheaply produced uh, short stories and, and, and novels in the 30s and 40s of the, of the, of the last century. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it was just easy to just keep going because people knew the characters, they knew the world building, they knew what was happening because it was all established. Uh, and then it's so, you know, if you trace the history, right, that, that led to the rise of war gaming, which led to the rise of Dungeons and Dragons, which then, if you think about it, I don't think the MCU would exist without Dungeons and Dragons uh, as a storytelling framework, right? It all, I think it all comes together. Well, it's very cool because I feel like a lot for, for a lot of reasons, ideas about protagonists, if you had to mastermind the MCU, you would be better served to have run Dungeons and Dragons your whole life because mm-hmm. of the idea of how do you spotlight multiple main characters? That idea of like, you know, I think the most interesting thing about running a game of D&D is this idea of really having a split protagonist of like, if you have six PCs, you have six main characters that need to have six heroes arcs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's good training for a type of storytelling that has not always been as dominant as it is today. Right. Um, looked at as a whole, the MCU does kind of do a job of like, okay, this movie is about Iron Man. We're going to focus on Iron Man here. And I think every Dungeon Master has had that moment where, you know, there's, I, I can, people can, can in good faith disagree on this point, but I would say on a session to session basis in a long campaign, it's not worthwhile to make sure that every PC gets ev- gets equal screen time in every single session. Mm. I think PCs actually end up presenting that. I think all PCs, I've had PCs be like, hey, this last arc, like this last six session arc, the bad guy was the person that murdered my parents. I had a deeper emotional connection to them. I'm okay if the next arc focuses on somebody. Like I've had PCs come up and be like, I was filled up on that last arc. I'm good if we actually kind of focus on someone else's thing, right? Like, um, I mean, that's great when you have people uh, in a uh, online game that are very focused on it being a show, right? Yes. So that that makes a lot of sense. I love that you have performers like that who are just like, yeah, you know, I'll take the backseat for a little bit or maybe even being emotionally drained. I, I can't, I can't give you everything you need for the rest of these sessions because I, I left it all on the court, you know, uh, for the previous arc. Um, yeah. How would you, I'm going to ask you some advice here because I know uh, DMing is something you've been doing for a very long time. How do you do that in a home game where it's not necessarily about the outward presentation? It's about everybody internally. Do you talk I, about it openly or do you let it kind of have yes. more private conversations? You do. I think a mix. You can have them private, have the conversations privately or you can have them in the open. But I think what it is, is it's a, it is a buy-in about the storytelling type. One of the things I say is like, listen, actual play is very different than playing a home game, but I think people would be surprised to know how similar my home games are to the stuff I run for Dimension 20. Like Mm. the reason I got to Dimension 20 and started doing that sort of out of the gate is because I all, from when I was 10 years old, like my friends and I, I don't remember if it was even conscious, but we acknowledged like our goal here is to live inside Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. Our goal, like, in other words, our goal is not to have a board game experience. Our goal is to have the game and its incredible mechanics undergird and lift up a narrative emotional experience, right? Like, I, I would actually say that, like, if you, if you, you know, D&D is a game and a medium, 
But if you made me, if you like pushed me around and said, say which one it is. And I was going like, it's both, it's both. And I say, which one I would almost say like D and D is actually a storytelling medium first and foremost. And the game is a storytelling partner. Like the designers of the game created a co-writer made of rules, which is mm. pretty cool to do. It's like an elemental summoned by the designers of D&D to be like, <laughs> you have this co-writer that is made up of rules and dice, but they're sitting at a table with you to do the real thing, which is to tell a story. And uh, I think that's what's so captivating about D&D. And I think that that where that comes down to me in running a table for your home game is you need that buy-in, right? Because if because you could have a player that's like, actually, dude, I'm just here to, to like um, engage in a strategic experience and kind of the flavor is whatever to me. You could absolutely have that, right? Um, but I think that for the most part, the with the players that I've had in my life, you know, years prior to being in an actual play scenario, that buy-in existed to live in a story. And so if you look at people and you go, okay, we have three hours to play tonight. We have six players. Everyone's getting 30 minutes of screen time, you know, parsed out. Let's get some stopwatches in here. Right. (laughs) I think people would go boo. Right. Due to that. Right. Um, I think people I think they're also because it's it's you know, I think a player would feel raw if they didn't talk once in a three hour session. But really what you're talking about is can this have a narrative give and take? We have a full party. If we get to the mountain, if we get to the, the, you know, the hall of Olympus where all the gods are there, is it cool if we kind of have 30 minutes that are about the party's cleric? Everyone goes, yep, that, that just makes sense. That feels good. And it, and there's a buy into that because you go, yeah, four sessions from now, when we get to the, to the master library, that wizard's going to come up and some wild stuff's going to happen. And then we're going to get to the strategy tent in the, in the trenches of the field. And that fighter is going to step up and have a lot to say. And that's going to feel better than having this weird accounting of our time on the mm. micro scale. That makes sense. I think. Yeah. 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 I think even like you said, like it's having the expectation of story. If you're, whether it's like in session zero or while you're just like asking, hey, you want to be in my game? This is, you know, the kind of type of game I like to run. I think you are going to possibly weed out some of those people that are more like, well, I just want to kill stuff. And, you know, yeah. um, but I do think, yeah, I think it's, I also think that there's those players that don't want that spotlight as well. That yeah. maybe they're just going to be like, please don't focus on me. Like, I'm just here to, Back you up. Yeah. I'm a support. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to yeah. draw in the corner and then all of a sudden at the end of the session be like, here's the scene where, you know, where you were all uh, uh, talking to the, the chief. And you're like, whoa. Yes. Yes. I think that, that that is really what it comes down to, right? Is like your players are individuals. They have different needs. And, you know, uniformity doesn't always take into account what the individual needs and desires of those players are, right? Um, So that's always a conversation, I think. That's always about knowing who's sitting at your table. I think that's been an 
I think that the game has shifted into a lot more over these last five years where we've talked about this evolution, right? Where I think actual play has enhanced people's understanding of the different styles of Dungeons and Dragons. This thing I've said a bunch of times where if you were in the 80s and you went into a game store and you played a game, you might bounce off D&D because those players or that dungeon master just didn't gel with the style that you were thinking of or that you enjoy. But now there is this search for an ideal or search for a connection because you see it happen amongst, you know, Dimension 20, amongst all the other shows that are out there where you're like, oh, I want, I want what they have. I want that friendship group um, uh, happening there. And then it, people are just a lot more open about like, okay, these are the things I want and these are the things I, I don't want to see in my game. And that just allows so many more people to um, uh, experience uh, it all in the way that they want, right? Because as it being a medium, mm-hmm. there's different, there are different ways to express stuff in that medium. It's a wild thing because I there I think for every per, there are some people like when Critical Role you know came onto the scene I've seen the things online where people were like whoa this is something new or I haven't seen it done this way before or something like that and I totally understand those reactions to that for for me the first time I watched Critical Role you know Dungeons and Dragons is such an interesting culture because it was so siloed like what was the game? The game was whatever was happening in your basement with your snacks and your pals, right? Whatever style you were playing. I started DMing when I was 10 years old. There's no way I was playing rules as written. I was 10. (laughs) I was 10, you know, just sitting there like, okay, you cast a spell. How does it work? Um, Roll this handful of dice. It works, you know, whatever. um, Hooray! but it's that idea of like, when I first saw Critical Role, you know, and all respect and understanding to people that were like, oh, this came in and changed the public perception of this game I always knew. That was not my experience. My experience was, oh my God, I'm not alone. Mm. Oh my God, there are people who play this game with the motivation and reasons that I thought me and my friends were pariahs for pariah might be too strong of a word, but at the very least, like, you know, I would go to the, to our local game store, see, you know, big, big nights of magic, the gathering, and then see people playing D and D. You know, I played with a group at a, at a game store one time and it was some insane, super deadly module. And I was like, I am Brandy as the bard of so-and-so. And some guy was like, character's dead. And I go, what? Oh. Oh dear. I can't sing the song I wrote in the back of my mom's minivan on the way to the game store. So yikes. And then me and my little, you know, I was like a, an 11, 12 year old homeschool kid. And I'm sitting there. We had a, this like in the summer, we would play in a little tent out in the backyard. There'd be trees blowing in the wind and we'd be telling stories. You know, we would play for eight hours on a Saturday. And like, yeah, we would have awesome combat. And by the time I was like 14, or 15 I had memorized the rules and was doing cool homebrew stuff and we were making our own worlds and characters but like you're saying uh, you know the public perception of the game was such that I thought like oh we're like even though I love how we're doing this maybe we're doing this in in our own way and and almost even had a little bit of a like well 
you know, maybe this isn't how you're supposed to do it, but we love how we do it. Right. And seeing Critical Role or the Adventure Zone or these other shows come in and have this very story forward approach, it was not like a <gasps> change in perception of the game. It was like someone being like, you haven't, you know, Matt Mercer did his Charles Xavier thing and went, mutants of the world, you are not alone. <laughs> and we all went, oh, and we came out. And I think there was this huge percentage of the people playing the game who didn't feel represented in the public consciousness, who suddenly felt represented. I love that. And felt represented like in a good way. Cause I I can think of of scenarios where like, you know, like I like this really obscure band and I was with them, you know, for 20 years before anyone and now they're like super then they become super commercially popular and you're like, well, screw it. I don't like this band this, anymore. This whole like like I was in before it was cool yeah. thing is the most toxic character trait of all time. Don't do that. <laughs> I remember being at middle school parties. Need I remind you, a homeschooler already in the sand trap starting, right? Wow, Not in wow. a good position and being like, I played D&D and people being like, word, let, that's the last interaction you have at this party. So I'm not in the rush to get back to that world. Anyone who's nostalgic for that, wake up. This is better. It's it better for the better. hobby to be enjoyed and loved. That's cool. I had yeah, I had none of that. I had none of that like look at these latecomers. As people started to discover, <laughs> as people started to discover D&D, I had these were the feelings I had. Oh my god. Like I was not crazy. This game was as cool as I always thought it was and now people are realizing that. Number 2, um uh uh honestly, especially like as it started happening and I was a performer, people coming to the hobby, making it possible for me to do that hobby, like professionally, a, a dream, a dream. I remember my mom telling me as a teenager, like, you know, Brennan, one day you'll be able to take the skills you developed playing D and D and apply them to whatever you end up doing. And it's like, <laughs> actually no translation required one-to-one. The skills are the skills I need. And uh, so that's number two was like, Oh my God, this like influx of, of community into this space is, is it's a rising tide. Look at all the incredible boats that are lifting actual plays and dice companies and productions and more source books and more things getting printed. And you know, all this amazing, it's a huge ecosystem flourishes. Water comes into a landscape and greenery grows everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and then the, and then the third thing also was like, I'm so glad more people are discovering this game because it changed my life. It right? teaches you how to right. tell stories and make choices and feel feelings. And I want as many people to uh, know those heights as I have. The more people that get into the game are the ones that bring their own uh, skills and things like your mom said to the game. Like that, that is what's happening. They're yeah. bringing their skills, like people who are theater background or math or, you know, science. And they are building those characters. And I'm thinking of Devin Rue, who's a cartographer and makes maps, but she's oh. bringing map making to its like utmost pinnacle in, in, during this time. <laughs> she's as an well. elite cartographer. Right. Like the yeah. I just the love best. that D and D can inspire so many different disciplines and, and artists and crafts people to yes. get together and get excited about it where they were all, spread out before. I mean, you yeah. know, that a lot of it has to do with the internet. Um, mm. But then, of course, things always swing a little bit back to the gaming and strategic side of things. So I wanted to ask you about what it's been like playing uh, in uh, Battle for Beyond. 
this whole idea of Ooh. of strategic things playing back and forth. How has that been? Well, listen. So number one, I love. To, uh, uh, I I. Dimension 20 is a very fun show. And so I love that we have had a bunch of fans say like, Brennan as a DM, he's all rule of cool, baby. He'll let anything slide. And I go like, internally, I'm like, I see the compliment that you are paying me. <laughs> I care very deeply about the rules. And <laughs> <laughs> the mechanics of the game are, are quite important to me. And anyone that's seen me PC in these games, I love getting into the mechanics. You know, the character I played in D&D uh, in Battle for Beyond, by the way, shout out to Battle for Beyond. D&D Beyond is so cool uh, uh, to Amy Dolan and Joe Starr, who were the producers on that. And of course, Jasmine Bueller, incredible dungeon master, was blown so away good. by Jasmine. Um, and then of course the co-PCs, Ify, Erica, Abria, uh, Josephine, Emma, uh, is just unbelievably fun, uh, uh, to play at that table. Um, but like you're saying, it was really fun to make a busted character for that little, little behind the scenes for people that don't know. I play a tiefling, um, hex blade paladin in that. And I rolled, uh, Jasmine had us roll for stats I I love the number side of the game. Like, mm. yes, the game is about storytelling. The rules help you live in the story. Yeah. These are not opposed. Like the crunch and the math side of D and D and the storytelling emotion side of D and D to me oppose each other like peanut butter and jelly oppose each other in a sandwich. Like <laughs> that. That's that's the opposition. These things are beautiful to great tastes that taste great together right yeah um <laughs> because you can't have both right like i i i know what you're saying because like when when i watch my kids pretend right you can just be like well i have a magic sword all right and then well i've got a magic sword that block or i got a magic shield that blocks that sword and then you can just if there's no um basis in understanding the physics of the world it just devolves into Calvin Ball, right? Where someone's just throwing stuff out there and they're, well, I'm the king, blah, blah, blah. And then it just, it becomes meaningless. And without yeah. the mechanics, there is a meaning that, you know, you can create the most, you know, quote unquote, broken character. But at least that means like I had to, I had to do all these choices along the way to get to this mechanical superiority that I'm attempting for, just like a hero would, just like a hero would. Exactly. It's the immersion, Greg, it's the immersion. Yeah. When I'm at the table trying to optimize my turn, I am emotionally running parallel to my hero trying as hard as they can to survive. Yeah. My hero is in a life or death situation trying their best to make the right move. And there is such a beautifully dovetailed analogy with me sitting in there feeling the real stress of the battle going what are my spells what are my options what can i do and that bead of sweat collects on my forehead and mm -hmm. i go i don't know if i'm going to make it that's yeah. incredible yes. and it, as you said i have played i have done freeform role playing it's great i love freeform role playing i have done improv which is totally sort of like governed by interpersonal rules rather than mechanics right um it's wonderful. When I sit down and play a tabletop game that is fully sort of rule-less, it's great. But in my head, I go, oh, this is a writer's meeting. This is mm -hmm. like being back at the writer's room at College Humor. That's great. 
writers for me is very is is writers is be, writing something together is beautiful and very rewarding. But I'm not having fun like I am in a system. When you sit at a table with some kind of system, right, whatever system it is, and you go, actually, decisions are going to be made by an unfeeling polyhedron. My character's <laughs> life hangs in like the balance. Life. Yes. And it's outside of my hands. It, like games that don't have that can't create the feeling of not sure, not being sure if you're going to live or die. Yes. And that's the feeling that makes it intoxicating. Like, yes, storytelling, absolutely. But what the brilliance of the game system of D&D and games like it, you know, like what that, what that brilliance is in the, in the Nat 20 or the Nat 1, what the brilliance is in that moment is you going, oh, I... Uh, I'm I'm not just telling the story. I'm in the story. Yeah. yeah. You want the balance of like, I'm living in it and I'm telling it at the same time. Uh, and that's a hard balance to strike. But I think D&D's rules do exactly that. Like, that's why I love, I talk about this a lot in terms of game design. D&D's rules are overwhelmingly diegetic, right? They describe the physics of the fantasy world. Here's how much damage the spell does. Here's how strong you are. Here's this, here's that, here's that. And within all of that, it makes you go, it makes the, it makes running your character an in-world experience. It makes running your, in other words, D&D doesn't have a rule that goes like, um, okay, roll this die on a one through five, the next scene's going to be sad. And on a six through eight, the next scene's going to be angry. And you go, oh, this is non-diegetic. Like now, now the game is directing my storytelling. The game just goes, you tell the story, but here's how the world works, which I really yeah. love. Yeah. Um, I, I like that. The concept, like, like con- having, con- you can't be invested emotionally unless you have consequences to your actions and the chance of failure. Yeah. And like having, I can be a very powerful sorcerer and I can have a lot of magic on mm-hmm. my side in a, in a fat spell book and this, in a party behind me supporting my every move and I can still fail. And like, that's what I love about the game is like, you never know. Like there's, you ha- and I always joke, like I need, you need to have that reality in your fantasy. Like I, we have to reel it up a little bit here. And because I want yeah. my fantasy to feel like this could actually be happening and this is real life. And the same with those, the consequences too. Like those are, those are also great story moments for yes. when you do fail and when you do make a bad decision. Like, um, like my character Drunky Two Shoes continues to do after every episode of Dragon Dog. <laughs> Drunky Two Drunky Two Shoes made a bad decision. Drunky Two Shoes isn't um, the most thoughtful when it comes to to actions. She just does stuff. Right. Oh uh, no. It's something that uh, the video games can do well, right? Where they can give you that fight or flight response. Like if you're if you're you know in a, in a fight with zombies uh, in a video game, you can feel like, oh my gosh, my heart is racing. Uh, uh, I'm feeling the consequences of that. But then if you're in a game where, well, I'm just going to reload, and it doesn't actually matter. Um, yeah, that fight or flight response doesn't exist. And I feel yeah. like that's a similar thing for for Dungeons and Dragons, where like you can play. Freeform role-playing games or improv, as you're saying, but if you don't have the the bead of sweat, as you were saying, coming down, actually, uh, this this is going to matter whether this what the decisions I'm making and how I'm using my resources is not only matter for my character, it matters for my teammates. 
yeah. who are all looking at me and wanting me to do the right thing or the, you know come up with the crazy solution that's going to end up uh, uh, killing the big bad at the end. Those kinds of things don't exist unless there is that uh, diegetic uh, description of the of the world. And it, exactly, and I love like all of it, consequence, everything. And I think it's important to point out, right, that like I'm not out here to yuck anyone's yum, but I think it's just dis- when I describe what D and D does for me, it is that where I go like we we can all be chasing a different high, right? Not everyone loves the beat of sweat. Not everyone mm. loves the feeling of panic. You might not like bungee jumping. I like bungee jumping. I like the feeling of, hey man, I've been with this character for three years. Maybe he dies tonight. I love that. <laughs> Maybe he dies tonight, baby. And if it happens, it's out of my hands. Right. As a dungeon master, I love the feeling too of like, I, I've always described my relationship to the dice. And again, I do, I really mean that. The, the beauty of DD is that the creators and designers of the game made and a disembodied collaborative storyteller. And that storyteller is my bad cop. It's great. Like you, like the PCs roll up, I go, look, admittedly, I made there be a great worm red dragon here. However, <laughs> now it's kind of the dice. Like in my hands, I, you know, my hands are clean. The dice, you know, this, the things has the stats that it has. It's going to roll what it's going to roll. And at the end of the day... <laughs> You got to bring it up with the dice if you got a problem. Like, that's beautiful. It's beautiful because it creates this feeling of like, yes, I'm still at the table with my friends. You know, as a DM, I never have an adversarial relationship. Like, if I roll a nat 20 in a fight that's already not going the PC's way, I get the ability to make a facial expression that goes like... Yikes, guys. Yeah. Like that ability where suddenly we're all in it together because there's consequences baked in. That's great. Again, but I understand if people are looking for, um, you know, these these game design terms we use are not universal. There's plenty of people who go like, immersion's not necessarily what I'm looking for. For me, absolutely what I'm looking for. And I think there are the games that give you immersive feelings. When my character's at risk, I get to feel a reflection of that risk. When my character's trying hard to solve a problem, I'm also at the table trying hard to solve a problem. All of that is, uh, you know, and and uh, the, the ability for D&D to reflect preparation, right? In, in all kinds of ways, preparation for like the equipment you have or like a wizard preparing their spells, but even the preparation of like, I built this character to be good at this and now I'm being faced with this thing. Do I have a high athletics or do I have some ability? To, like I'm gonna try to break down a door. I built my character to be able to break down doors and I have the feeling of knowing that even if I hit in that one, I still built my character to be able to handle this kind of problem. Yeah. It gives you these feelings that are reflections of the feeling the characters have inside the world. Um, the, talking about D&D Beyond, the character I made for that, Nikhil, had a, it was such a fun challenge. I rolled garbage stats for him, except one. I had one 18. Maybe it was a 17, actually. Um, but I had, one, I had one 18, and in that 18, um, I went, okay, how do I make a busted character that only has one good stat? And I got to crack open the books and reflect the struggle my character would have had having, like, wanting to be the best. He's like this heroic adventurer. He wants to be good, but he's he's only got one, he's got a 20 charisma. That's the only thing that he can rely on. <laughs> 
right? And I, I go through the books and I pour over it and I go, one level Hexblade lets me add charisma to attack and damage. Sink all the rest of the levels into Paladin. Get armor, which, which means that my bad dex is not going to come back and bite me in the ass. All of a sudden, I am a high armor class Paladin Warlock that has my full charisma bonus to attack and damage. And I have completely, other than my bad constitution, which there's no getting around, I have completely ameliorated the fact that I shouldn't be good at any of this stuff. Yeah. And it, and I went, this feel, this lets me know what this character's journey was. The mechanics let me know what this character's journey was. And then you have this really evocative character, right? The warlock paladin. You're like, all right, why, how does that work? Yeah. How does that work? Oh, um, he was like a tiefling. Uh, uh, it was it was a homebrew setting that Jasmine Bueller created. So his war, his warlock abilities were kind of attuned to the magical patrons of this interdimensional coliseum that people from all over the multiverse came to to compete in. Jasmine mm-hmm. is dope. Everyone go check out Jasmine Bueller. She's unreal. Um, and uh, and then the palette he started as Oathbreaker because he was really a sort of nasty dude. But through the relationship that he developed with Abria Iyengar's character, who uh, reached out to him and was vulnerable and and offered him true friendship, uh, by the end of that uh, campaign, spoilers for Battle or Beyond. Uh, by the end hmm. of that campaign, he had switched to an Oath of Devotion paladin. He Whoa. was uh, he he was like walking the path of trying to be a better person. Um, and that's how that those was, two interact so well. Go ahead, Shelley. I'm sorry. Was was that something that that came up in throughout the the campaign, or did you did you and Abria talk about that? Totally organic. Had no wow. idea it was going to happen. Had no idea. That's really cool. The way she just played it, it was impossible for my character to be the sort of the villain that I had imagined him being. She was just like her character connected to him in this really meaningful way. And I went, um, you know, I was like. I was like, I don't think my character can go down this road that I had anti- that I had not planned for him, but I had anticipated for him. Um, and Abria's choices in the in the world skewed at this other direction was really beautiful and meaningful, and also some incredible role playing on Jasmine's part as my character's NPC sister. And um, oh, cool! It just made sense. It just made sense for for him to like not go that path. And and the Oathbreaker part of him was really connected to this idea of being cynical and misanthropic and not seeing the good in people. And by the end of that, he had was like, no, it, it wasn't that he had seen the good in people. He was still a little bit of a jerk, but he was like, I still think people are mostly bad, but it's worth it to give them a chance to prove that and to not assume that going in. Mm. It was very hard. Wow, that's so, huge. Yeah, it was very, very, and changed to Oath of Devotion. And um, was it was very touching. Uh, and let me tell you, Oath of Devotion, Sacred Weapon, I was rolling plus 12 or plus 13 on those weapon attacks at like level five. So <laughs> once again, we come back to the mechanics. Um, so, There's you know. perks to being good. There's perks <laughs> to being good. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you different. That's so cool. Uh, I love this conversation because it just gets into the heart of, of, I mean, even the genre stuff that we were just talking about, how like, you can have these things about swords and dragons and, and you know, uh, the English professors of the world might poo-poo it, mm-hmm. um, but you just have that meaningful re- connection and it said something maybe about you about or, or, or people watching it might be like, huh, maybe I used to be that misanthropic asshole and maybe there is good. Maybe there is something in a found family that I need to, to kind of latch onto. And I think a lot of people have been doing that uh, during this 
quarantine yeah. pandemic time of like finding the people that 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 bring them up and lift them up and and playing games together uh, has been a big boon uh, to people. And you're you know it sounds like all the people that you've been playing with it's been similar. I mean a million percent, and also just like. I think that finding meaning in these fantastical worlds and stories, nothing could be more established as a reality of human nature. In in other words, humans have been telling stories about flying magical heroes with swords with names and their friends that live in the clouds and the strange forests they go through. Humans have been telling that story for the whole time we've been human. Like from the from the word go, people yeah. have been telling stories about sad English professors for like a hundred years. And <laughs> <laughs> so, in other words, you know the Western canon. I kind of I forget what I forget who said it first. It might have been my mom or it might have been someone else. But someone said like the human species got into real trouble the first time a cave painter painted a cave painter and went, actually, cave painters are kind of the most important. And you're like, no, go back to drawing the cool <laughs> buffalo. This sucks. Um, so that's my, that's my commentary on, like, you know, the stories about sad writers that don't know what their story is going to be about. And you're like, no, oh, this is so self-referential. Um, <laughs> but in any case, that's, that's my own little pet peeve. I would say that, like, finding, you know, it's, there's, there's a very funny thing that I feel like is only... an artifact of the modern world where people go like, I can't draw meaning from a fantasy story or like, I I can't get into this. There's dragons and magic and stuff. When like the whole canon of human storytelling has, is so filled with mythology, folklore. Like that's what we've been doing forever. And that's how we've always communicated very deep truths Mm-hmm. I don't know how to tell people what's going on with me emotionally unless I talk about dragons. So I don't like, <laughs> you know, that's the metaphor that makes the most sense to me. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that like, Greg, to, like, I not only do I agree with you, but I would say like the numbers don't lie. Like our right. ability to draw meaning from myth and fantasy is the most documented fact of human history that there has ever been. Like so clearly and evidently those metaphors and those symbols are extraordinarily powerful and relevant. Um, so yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. people who play D and D get to have those metaphors at their table, hopefully on a weekly basis, and and connect with it that way. Yeah, yes. your mom, your mom was right. There, those skills that you're learning from Dungeons and Dragons will serve you in life, even if your life doesn't turn you into a a professional dungeon master. Um, there, you're. You're just going to be a better person. Like, wouldn't you just rather work for somebody who, like, maybe that you work in finance, but your boss played Dungeons and Dragons, and your your boss is inherently better because of that. I love it. I love it. I want that. I, yeah, I want someone who understands party communication and optimization. I want someone who understands the feeling of the fact that our, we embellish each other's strengths and cover each other's weaknesses. That's, yes. that's what I want. That's the what emp- I want. Empathy. It's like the, the best human skill you can have. So hard to teach, but D&D just, you, it, it seeps into your bones just by being a D&D player. I totally agree. You I can't totally, help totally it. Yeah. Um, I love it. So I think, I think we're wrapping up here, but I did want to ask, cause I'm, I, I love science fiction and I love, uh, uh, you know, the, the 
way that fantasy and science fiction kind of is this intertwined double helix of of storytelling and inspiration back and forth to each other. And you are adapting your mom's oh novel gosh. into an actual play? Like, this sounds come like on. a dream come true. Speaking of Mama moms. Lee. Yeah, speaking <laughs> of moms. Um, uh, my mother, Elaine Lee, um, is a... Uh, critically acclaimed, you know, uh, graphic novel and comic book uh, author. And her work that she created with Michael Kaluta, who's also like my godfather, um, Starstruck is, for those who don't know, check out Starstruck. I think it's getting reprinted by IDW like the end of February. It's um, a seminal work did things within the graphic novel science fiction genre that had never been done before, like ensemble cast led by women, um, jumped around in time, did things of like including in-world media. So it's this rich textured world building, you know, like it is, it is a foundational text of the genre. Um, And, you know, we've been meaning to do sci-fi at dimension 20 forever. The huge genre, but I'll, I won't lie. I was like, Sci-fi is hard. Sci-fi is just the, the the lore of fantasy is a lot more archetypal. Like mm. if your PCs pull a, like a, a 90 degree turn in a way you aren't expecting, and they're like, we go left at the road. What do we find? And you can, as in a fantasy world, you can go, you find the the village of Thremblin. It's got some huts, some goats. And a well with a strange riddle man. And you go, great. Fantasy village. Got it. If you do sci-fi and they pull an entity return, they can, first of all, they have a spaceship. They can go anywhere in the galaxy, the drop of a hat. (laughs) No, there's not like, okay, they got a couple days of going through the forest. They can't, they can't get around without going through the forest. Like, no, they have interstellar travel. And then they get to, you're like, okay, where do we go? And you're like, you are in the corporate mining encampment of, Rexel 3, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of the UFTP corporate. It's just, um, people can disagree with me on this. For me and my taste, fantasy is served by being in soft focus. Sci-fi kind of needs to be in hard focus. Mm. The resolution's a little higher. The details are like, if you, you can't just say like, you find a drill. People go like, what kind of drill? And you're like, oh God, it's a... Smexel 350. It's it's better. It's better than the drill you have now. It's like everything needs to be, you know, like you. If you look at Lord of the Rings, it's like the sword glam drink. You look at the Star Wars visual glossary, and it's like here's 18 different blasters, and what's different about all of them? And you go, yikes! Like that's that's different. The texture is different. Um, yeah, the technology allows for like a greater specificity, right? Where you know you you have those annals, and you have the idea of there being. Uh, uh, you know, bits and bits and bits of data about everything in the entire universe where fantasy is much more about like, what was that thing that happened 10 years ago? I don't know. Did someone write about it? Nope. Yeah. So it's all just like oral <laughs> history and you can, yeah, right. You can just hand wave so much of it. You can hand wave so much of it. And if Gandalf rolls up and does something no one else can do in fantasy, everyone's like right on in sci-fi. They're like, we're going to kill Gandalf and take whatever device he just used. <laughs> and now we can do that. Or we're going to take now Gandalf. We're wizards. Now we're wizards. We take his <laughs> wizard cube and now we're also wizards. You go, yikes. This is hard. Power um, creep. Power creep. Um, but I would say, uh, so, so, you know, we were looking for, and I was like, I need a sci-fi world 
that's already funny and already has all this lore built. Because, you know, I only usually have like three or four months of lead time before I need to make the next season of D20. Mm-hmm. And I went, if only there were a sci-fi world that was super funny and very textured and, oh my God, how did I not think of this before? Let me hey, call- mom. <laughs> yeah, hey, mom. Hey, Can mom. Can your world? Um, <laughs> and mom was nice enough to let us do so. And so we're, uh, it premiered only a few weeks, it premiered uh, mid-January. We've only had two episodes come out so far. It's called A Starstruck Odyssey. It is, I can tell you right now, it's the most unhinged season of the show we've ever done. We've had, we have the intrepid heroes back, our core cast. Um, and I just laughed. I, I, there were moments of laughter in this show that made me feel like, oops, I'm going to permanently lose some faculties here. I'm laughing too hard. I'm depriving my body of oxygen. I'm crying. <laughs> some of these, some of these biological systems are not coming back after laughing this hard. Um, it was so good. It was so, so good. Aww, That's awesome. I love it. I didn't realize. Tribute. Thank I didn't you. realize it was a humor based thing. I love, uh, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all that like kind of bent about commenting on our society yes. by making fun of future society. Well, Starstruck, for people that want to, want to know what the vibe of the world is, it is absurdist humor. There's a big streak of nihilism and cynicism, but it's also so fun. It's like, it is a, first of all, so it's retro-futuristic. So it's like bright, you know, colorful, like 1950s Flash Gordon, like, my Atomo boy particle blaster, like that kind of vibe. But then the galaxy is completely dominated by a number of galacto corporate factions. So you're like, gee willikers, I'm deeply in debt to the Acme Ashman Corporation for my cybernetic body. They're coming after me. And you're like, ooh, it's like a little Flash Gordon and some deep dystopia. And that's, it. so there is a, 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 um, you know, the, the I think the the way mom explains Starstruck to me is it's like, it's hot suns, hot guns, it's space opera and adventure in the stars, but also keep your head on a swivel. This is, a, you know, the, the like, there are people coming for you here. It is not a friendly, either, the stars are not friendly. There's like, the, the Galactic Girl Guide's motto is, it's a tough galaxy, but somebody's got to live in it. It might yeah. as well be you. Um and Love that's that. kind of the vibe of the of the setting. Oh my god, that's amazing! Hot suns and hot guns. I'm gonna remember that one for a long time. Hot suns, hot guns, baby. <laughs> so cool! Uh, I can't wait to check that out. You know that, like I said, that mixture of fantasy and sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Uh, they feed off each other. I've had tons of conversations with Uber nerds uh, of my own ilk about what <laughs> the definitions of those two genres are, and I love yes. that you're basically just smashing it up uh, and and letting people uh, see what happens and hopefully put on a good show. I love that people were laughing as much as they are, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Good stuff. I think, we, I mean, we can keep going forever. Let's, let's do oh, another for hour. for real. We could. I'm moving in. <laughs> I, <laughs> New co-host. New co-host, Brendan Lee Mulligan. Here we go. You're never getting rid of me. Don't tease us. <laughs> God. <laughs> Uh, how can people find out about all this stuff? What's the best uh, holding place on the web for people to find out everything that that Brendan Lee Mulligan's doing? 
Uh, Brennan Lee Mulligan. Uh, check me out at dropout.tv. That's where every single episode of Dimension 20, as well as a bunch of other amazing shows like I'm Actually and Game Changer, uh, all that lives at dropout.tv. Uh, if you want to see uh, some of what our deal is, um, you can go there for a free trial. You can also go to our YouTube page, youtube.com slash Dimension 20 show. We got full seasons of the show there. We got the premiere episode of A Starstruck Odyssey, so you can go see if these stars are too rough for you or not. <laughs> um, you can also f- follow uh, me personally at Brennan LM on Twitter, at Brennan Lee Mulligan on Instagram. Uh, you can also see D- Dimension 20 show and Dropout. It's all over the social the socials so you can find us the social meds you can find us wherever uh but yeah uh come check us out so fun so much for being on again dude a pleasure and honor so much love gang this was such a hoot yes thank you so much i had to stretch after that interview because i i had a stitch in my side like literally my from laughing my my friend was in stitches that was me because i was laughing too hard from that that was so enjoyable. I feel like like tomorrow my double chin will be gone from exercising <laughs> these <laughs> smile muscles so much. Is or because I we... had secret liposuction, one or the other. Secret liposuction, uh, meaning you just wouldn't tell anybody? Right. Right. Yeah. Not yeah. that you had to go to a secret, like, you know, off the... Like a, like a speakeasy liposuction. <laughs> have you been to the speakeasy in, uh, in West Seattle? I have. That's have you? The, they, they make very good drinks there, and they oh. will suck the fat right out of you. Their drinks are so good. Yeah. Um, and also, it's just, it's a speakeasy. It's fun, you know. But, That's cool. Yeah, very cool. Uh, hopefully, when uh, we get to go to places like that again, maybe we can run a D&D game in there, because it barely, it's like all painted black oh, on the inside. Yeah. It actually feels very mystical and fantastical in there. I do feel like it could be a place that you would encounter in your D&D game. Absolutely. And it's also, isn't it in the same place where the escape room is? I or around there? I did see some stuff about there being an escape room there too. So Which I haven't done. But also like we could really D&D it up. We could Maybe just pretend we... that we're, we could go to the escape room and pretend we're our D&D characters. Yes. And then we can see Mr. Strahd who you saw at Trader Joe's. Uh, right. He's the big bad guy there drinking wine. Would that be okay? Now I want Strahd to work at a grocery store. <laughs> I am picturing him with his <laughs> with his Hawaiian Trader Joe's shirt <laughs> and the the slicked back. It looks like yes! my hair right now. The slicked back hair with the widow's peak. Like, can uh, you just see? You know how they're always so chatty. The cashiers. He'll just be like, "What are you doing this week, on huh? Have you tried the cheese curds? They're so good." <laughs> <laughs> no, they're seasonal. You have to get them now. I love to eat people from Wisconsin. I mean, I love to eat cheese curds from Wisconsin. <laughs> I'm having you for dinner. <laughs> and we'll have cheese curds is what I mean. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> All right. Now I feel like this is actually a sketch that we have to write and film. Okay. <laughs> All right. We could have, you know what? Let's just do one with like famous D&D Character, like, they, they don't all have to just be you know, villains, yeah. but famous D&D characters working at Trader Joe's. Because no matter who they are, I, they have to wear the Hawaiian. We You're can in do marketing, like the, Shelley. Let's get Trader Joe's and let's partner and do this. Yes. <laughs> this is the brainstorming session now. Thank you so much for being here for the Dragon Talk brainstorming hour. Now you uh, see how, the, how 
it gets everything gets made behind <laughs> the scenes. This is Greg and I are, are truly the brains of the operation. This is how Strahd makes the sausage out of people. <laughs> at trade and then sells it at Trader Joe's. Sells <laughs> it at Trader Joe's. Oh, I mean, you could have seen with it like a meat grinder. This is like, oh yeah, there's like, some oh, really yeah. good uh, German in here. There's some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Oh, it's a so little cobalt. Well, if you want to find out how you can create all of these weird scenarios in your brain using the the framework of Dungeons and Dragons, you can go to DungeonsDragons.com. But more importantly, if you want all of this hilarity, you can follow us uh, personally on the social <laughs> meds. I'm at Greg Tito uh, on Twitter and Greg underscore uh, Tito on Instagram. Uh, and what about you? I'm at Shelly Moo on the Twitter and the Instagram. Excellent. Yeah. Check out all of our fun stuff going on there. But in the meantime, we need to finish up our story what's happening with Drunky Tushes. I would so say you, continue our story, Greg. That continue. was ominous. Right. What do finish. you mean finish? You're finished. <laughs> I think you are in the battle. You have doppelgangers in front of you, uh, three of them now as the guards who might have come to your rescue actually had a doppelganger, which you detected and confronted, but then you crit him in the face with a firebolt, um, and you were able to spring up. You still have manacles connecting to your two hands together. I don't think you've broken those, correct? I don't um, think I have. But you are back-to-back with your brother, Daryl, and Samson, your fellow Harper, uh, in a fracas, and it is uh, the doppelganger's turn to attack you. I just uh, so the one, one I just them, critted in the face. No, uh, well, yes, actually, him. He tries to go at you, but he misses. Yeah, he another should. Another one hits Samson, and another one misses Daryl. Samson gets stabbed for <gasps> oh crap. Um, a grand total of only five points. Um, but he was, you were asking him last session if he has a healing potion. He's like, it's in my back. Uh, but him turning his head, let, uh, his defenses kind of move uh, for oh, a second. Sh- and then he gets stabbed in the side. He's like, ah, I think I, I think I need that healing potion. Okay. Uh, I thought Drunky thinks that he says in my crack. And so she <laughs> <laughs> is like rooting around for it. And is like, no, nothing. Not there. That's not it. I got swamp ass. Oh! Don't smell it. Oh, wait, hands. I have my manacles on. I don't even think I You're still could. trying to, like, put yeah. your hands down yeah. his, his crack. And, uh, yeah, not even questioning why that's where you would keep your healing potion. Your healing potion. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, we'll say you spend your entire turn uh, going through crack and then you know, trying to find it in the in I deserve pack. it. I yeah. deserve it. Yeah. Um, but you, you, can, you can drink it if you want uh, on this turn, but you can't do anything else. Oh, I don't want to drink it. I want to give it to Okay. Sam. So you would you want to just like kind of pour yeah. it in his mouth? He's like, ah. Yeah. And I feel really bad for the other guard that was innocent that is like lying prone on the ground. That's who I wanted to give the healing potion to, but Samson's my boy. All right. So I got my handy potion here. You do uh, five points of healing with that healing potion. Exactly what you needed. Oh. Uh, so yeah, he gets he gets the red... Um, amazing viscous liquid kind of sprayed. Most of it goes in his mouth, but it's certainly because in the in the, in the midst of battle you miss a few. And so you know he's just covered with like red sticky uh, um, healing potion residue. Can Drunky his... lick it off his face <laughs> like yes. a kitty? Yes, you can. 
Does it offer me like, any stop healing? It, stop it! Come on, we got. They're I trying to kill us. I can't resist. I can't. Uh, and uh, Daryl um, is uh, just uh, adding to the cacophony by stop it! No, we gotta get them. And okay, uh, okay. should we go up the ladder? Should we? Should we run? And he says that, uh, and that's where we'll end. Uh, and pick it up next time, as it is now your turn. Okay. I'll have a whole week to think of a proper about, answer to that question. I love that you're licking the uh, the, the healing potion off. Yummy. Yummy.